This podcast is made possible by your support and your donations. Thank you. And by the purchase of my book called Everyday Buddhism, Real Life Buddhist Teachings and Practices for Real Change. I will post an affiliate link to the book on Amazon in the show notes. And if you've already read it, please take a minute to rate and review and also consider purchasing it again for a friend or family member as a gift. Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 87 of Everyday Buddhism, Making Every Day Better. In this episode, I talk with Sensei Koshin Paley Ellison, an author, Zen teacher, and Jungian psychotherapist who has devoted his life to the study and application of psychotherapy and Buddhism. After a decade working as a psychotherapist, Koshin co-founded the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. This nonprofit center offers contemplative approaches to care through education, care partnering, and Zen practice. Today, the New York Zen Center's methodologies are internationally recognized and have touched the lives of thousands of people. Koshin was his grandmother's primary caregiver for the last five years of her life, and she was the one who inspired him to open the New York Zen Center so more people could have the compassionate and spiritually-based support it provides. Koshin and his co-founder, who is also his husband and a fellow monk, transform people's lives through Zen practice, contemplative caregiving, and learning. The center also offers a contemplative care training program, a contemplative medicine fellowship, community support groups, and various Zen and meditation training classes and courses. Koshin's work has been featured in the New York Times, PBS, and CBS Sunday Morning, among other media outlets. Koshin is also the author of Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, Wake Up, and the co-editor of Awake at the Bedside, Contemplative Teachings on Palliative palliative and End-of-Life Care, in addition to his recently released book, Untangled, Walking the Eightfold Path to Clarity, Courage, and Compassion, which is the book we talk about in this conversation. Koshin grew up in Syracuse, New York, just down the road from me, in Rochester, and began his spiritual journey after a troubled childhood filled with abuse and bullying for his identities as a Jewish gay man. He met his first meditation teacher in a karate class, where else, and then his first Zen master at the age of 17, who inspired his journey to become an ordained Zen monk. Koshin began his formal Zen training in 1987 and is now recognized as a Soto Zen teacher. 
He serves on the board of directors at the Soto Zen Buddhist Association and the Bar Center for Buddhist Studies. He has all completed, also completed six years of training at the Jungian Psychoanalytic Association, as well as clin- clinical contemplative training at both Mount Sinai Beth Israel Medical Center and New York Presbyterian Medical Center. Koshin currently lives in New York City with his husband and their two Maine Coon cats. In this conversation, we discuss Koshin's latest book, like I said, Untangled, Walking the Eightfold Path to Clarity, Courage, and Compassion. Among many other things, we talk about the needy cookie monster in him, myself, and maybe many of you, the power of perspective in helping you to recognize when your old stories resurface, the three kinds of minds, grandmotherly mind, great mind, and joyful mind, self-clinging as a deep form of stealing, and how everything everywhere is a place of practice. I was thrilled to have this conversation with Koshin. Keep listening and you'll know why. You can actually hear the twinkle in his eyes and his beaming smile and know why the Zen priest Norman Fisher wrote this about him in a review of his book. Quote, what? An approachable Zen master who's willing to be vulnerable and is comfortable with hugs and tears? Yeah, that's Koshin, unquote. The conversation will start soon, but I just want to add one thing. Um, I incorrectly, I referenced the writing of my book, Everyday Buddhism, um, as being published in 2009. I, I forgot to say 2019, or I mistakenly didn't say 2019, just to clear that up. Okay, the conversation starts now. Hello, Koshin. I've been excited about talking with you about your new book, Untangled, Walking the Eightfold Path to Clarity, Courage, and Compassion. You know, as we briefly discussed prior to the recording, um, I, uh, we seem to both share a deep respect for the Eightfold Path, not just as a foundational Buddhist teaching, but as a way to look at and transform, as you call them, the tangles uh, or the messes of life uh, around us and inside of us. So just to get going here, can you say more about why you were inspired to use the Eightfold Path as sort of the structure for this book? Yeah. So first of all, thank you. And hello. Hello. And, And for me, you know, as a monk and as a teacher and as someone who cares for people, I encounter lots of suffering and lots of suffering in others and in myself and in the world. And for me, it was really uh, a way to begin to investigate the Four Noble Truths as a place to like remember, because I love, you know, often the word is translated as mindfulness, but I prefer the translation of 
remembering. So to remember and come back, which feels much more active for me. And so to really look at our suffering and our causes of suffering, the giants of greed and resentment and delusion, and how do we change? And then how do we companion each other on this path? And so it was an opportunity to actually look deeply at my own suffering, because I find one of the ethical aspects of my own uh, experience of practice is to really focus on sharing myself and not in a sentimental way, but to say, you know, this is, I think that teachers or monks have the kind of ethical obligation to share a bit about the path because really we're in this role so that we can because we've been down the path a little bit further perhaps Mm -hmm. and really helpful to share like well this is what how i'm reflecting on these teachings in my own life so that we can actually do that together and so i'm very much interested in you know, the Buddhist historical teaching that the whole of spiritual life is having good spiritual friends. So even writing a book is an opportunity to have a spiritual friendship of a kind where we're saying, this is my story and this is what I'm thinking. How about you? Uh, Yeah, exactly. And I like that you, um, circle back around remembering. I like that too. That's a, I tell people, you know, that's what mantras are all about. That's what all of, you know, mindfulness, it's all about this, you know? And, and the other thing that uh, I, I really liked about it was that you, um, you talked about using it as a way to be a friend, you know? Um, and, and your book reads like that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, I, I mean, I, I followed you sort of, you know, I don't mean in a creepy way, but I mean, I I followed your path. I was interested in what you were doing, Um, uh, but I hadn't read any previous works and I didn't really know much about your personal life. Um, And, you know, as a fellow writer, I wrote a similar book. I wrote in 2009, I released a book called Everyday Buddhism, um, real life teachings and practices for real change. I always forget the subtitle. Um, so, um, and I use the eightfold path as, as the, as the structure. And I was struck by your honest and open sharing of your life, you know, your pain, your quirkiness, your embarrassments and the laughs. Right. And, um, as I said, when, the listeners don't know this, but we we I shared a little with you in in, in uh, prior to recording. Um, you know, we have some similarities in that I grew up as a gay kid too, and uh, despite my kidness happening a, a couple of decades earlier than your kidness, um, when I was reading the book, I felt like we were old friends. And so, what that feeling I think is so important because. Um, it's like, I'm a lay teacher. I'm a sensei, but I'm a lay teacher, not a, a monk, not a monastic and not a professional. And, 
And, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. we, we were, we were taught in our program that it's all about just being there as, as just maybe one step, a half a step, a quarter step ahead of maybe somebody else, just so you can share some things. And, you know, you were sharing in the book and then your reflections after, which I'm giving away a bit of the structure, um, uh, made for an addictive read and also, you know, a lot of takeaways that stick. Um, one of the things that, and I'll, I'll tell you, you're, the offering of the reflections are, are good. You know, obviously some of them really hit me. Some of them didn't really hit me, but I'm sure they'll really hit somebody else. That's how it goes. Um, and it's just like you said, when they read your story and then they see the reflections, they can they can start thinking, well, how does this work in my life or how has this worked in my life? Um, and these things ended up for me in reading your book as profound places of practice. That's how you that's the phrase you use. And they those places of practice ended up more often than not being things I really needed to hear or hear again or remember and needed to practice. And so bouncing that back to you, one of my personal favorites is the cookie monster. So (laughs) this antidote stuck with me and I I've shared it already with people. Um, And so I'm glad you shared it. Can you share your cookie monster teachings with us right now? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, when I, I don't know. It feels like the for the first like 10 or 15 years of practicing, I was, you know, very interested in all the Zen forms and very interested in doing things right and being liked. <laughs> and I thought I was being really compassionate and kind and like my little pony being ridden on by Hello Kitty, you know, to like, <laughs> I thought I was like this with rainbows and being so helpful. But it really, what I saw was like that I was like Cookie Monster, really. I was like this monster, you know, and he's very sweet, you know, and we all love him because it's that very kind of addicted part of me that was being covered over by this idea of compassion and this idea of Mm. kindness and this idea of, of not really taking a close look or as the wonderful teacher Taisan Mazumi Roshi talks about that, you know, not deceiving ourselves. And I was deceiving myself and not really looking at like that part of me that was just like, give me a cookie. Tell me you like me. Tell me how, (laughs) tell me how compassionate I am, how kind I am, how, helpful I am and how good I am you know and because I there was a part of me that felt like it really needed that but it was like this addiction like cookie monster like ah you know he's just like throwing those cookies in and he can't even if you really watch carefully he's not really eating them turns (laughs) out and uh and I they were it was not nourishing to me either So I think to have a sense of humor about that part of ourselves and realize like, oh goodness, like (laughs) there I go again, there I go again, you know? 
that little cookie monster. And I think it's such a sweet image because, you know, he's so cute and we all love him because we all are him. You know, this ins- insatiable part of ourselves. Yeah. And th- and that's what got me. And, and now just really quick, the personal story is I had just been suffering, well, suffering. It wasn't that bad. I had just been struggling with, um, I have a sangha and it's a virtual sangha. And it's, I, I caught myself the other day still thinking, how do I get more people to come? Cause you know, they, it, sanghas fluctuate. Sometimes there's like 20 people. Sometimes there's four there. And there's always those four people that always show up and help you do things. And then there's, you know, so and and then when I read your that part about the cookie monster, I thought, you know, this isn't about me. This is about the sangha. Why why is it I'm trying to put all these cookies in my mouth and why am I not worried about them? So thank you. That's where that came from. And um I have multiple sticky notes and margin notes in your book here. Um, as you can see. Um and too many to go on with this discussion. Um, but I'm going to kind of go ahead and try to tick off as much as the eightfold path as possible and bring up some things that I think will make interesting discussions, but feel free to reroute me or take a detour or whatever. Um, and, but let's first touch on, let's first touch on your unique presentation of the eightfold path. So, we can go into a little more details. We continue, but let's briefly, you know, summarize your teaching on the untangling of our views, intention, speech, action, and so forth, all the eightfold path. Hmm. But at the very beginning of your book, um, I really have to start here because I think it's all about, in my mind, it's all about right view. Everything hinges on right view. Yes, it's a circle. Yes, it's not linear. And we go round and round and round, kind of like a circular staircase. You know, you keep circling and it's kind of sometimes you feel like you're going backwards because you are going backwards in practice. Um, But I think inquiry, you talked about inquiry. I think inquiry is really at the heart of it. It's at the heart of Zen. It's at the heart of Vipassana. It's at the heart of Buddhism, really. It's I think it's the fuel for you know, mindfulness and meditation. It's such a powerful concept. And I loved how you summarize this. And I want to share this because I think it kicks it off this right perspective in the right way. You, you wrote, what the Buddha did was take an honest account of our situation as human beings, all of our vulnerabilities and the way we cause ourselves needless suffering. Then as the texts tell it, he vowed to never again to build himself a house of sorrow. He knocked out the ridgepole. It's the poetic way of saying, and this is your words, that he looked around and thought, bam, I've got to see through all my bullshit. And that is what we have to do to shred the threads, right? The threads the, 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 the of our entanglement and get to that place of pleasure that you talked about. Um, but, and we only can do that through inquiry, I think, and, but it takes guts. 
I mean, really, it takes bravery. I think that's why it's called the Noble Eightfold Path, because it takes a lot of nobility to stick with it. It takes practice and it takes time. And I will add a personal emphasis on time. Can you talk more about this practice of maybe the practice and the payoff of inquiry, of sitting with your crap, of sitting with your pain, of keeping it up? Payoff. Uh, that might have been I, a loaded question. <laughs> I don't actually believe in payoff. Um, there you go. And... Because I think that, but I think that that's where most people come to practice for a payoff or a payout, maybe. Payout. And and I think that there was a study done in the 80s that I love to reference, even though I don't know the exact study it was, but I remember reading about it where people stopped meditating because they didn't feel better. They didn't feel more peaceful. They didn't get their payout. So I always think that the amazing opportunity of practice is the amazing opportunity for practice. And, you know, as my teacher, um, Genyu Kojima Roshi talks about, like in his training at Eheji, you know, that you see that have maybe have seen films of the monks cleaning the floor with rags and they run down the floor and what happens is that in these long, beautiful hallways, they are, each monk has to clean every inch. And then collectively, they are all cleaning every inch. So to me, this is the, in many ways, the spirit of practice where I'm responsible myself for cleaning every inch of really learning how to clean how to clean my wounds and to clean where I'm kind of getting addicted and getting kind of like into some story or doing the same thing again. Here it comes again. Here comes the cookie monster. Here comes the giant of greed. Here comes the giant of delusion again. That we don't arrive anywhere. We just actually start to to me, the beauty of perspective is like, oh, there you are again, you know, and I know you and I know how to work with you. It's kind of how Dogen Zenji, the founder of our school, who died about 796 years ago. And give or take, <laughs> give or take. And I, uh, well, because we're preparing for his 800. Anniversary. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and uh, but there's something he talked about these three kinds of minds that are really helpful in practice. And for me, they're so beautiful. And one of them is Roshin, which is you know sometimes translated as grandmotherly mind. And it's that kind of mind where a real loving compassion. And so that you see that you're getting caught in some of your bullshit or you're get or you are getting really reactive and the kind of grandmotherly mind is so sweet it's like the grandmother sitting on the bench and watching a kid fall in front of her and you know scuffs his knee or her knee or their knee and she knows that we fall 
it's not such a big deal, but you can tend to it and clean it up and take care of it, but it's not such a drama or even a melodrama. And, you know, and it's so important. And then also to have the mind of Daishin, which is the magnanimous mind, this great mind where we're, you know, we're holding this real spaciousness where we can say, my goodness, what's happening here? Where it can hold the whole, it's almost like holding a cosmic mind. I was with a group of people this morning and, you know, they were talking about what was challenging for them and just be able to hold all of it without getting lost in one of the stories mm. and how helpful that can be both yeah. for ourselves and for others to hold that kind of mind. And then of course the last mind is called Kishin, which means joyful mind and joyful mind is that kind of about, ability to be joyful that we actually appreciate that life is ticking by and precious and precarious so be joyful that you can experience what you're experiencing while you're experiencing it yeah even if it's great sorrow so to me those kinds of minds are super helpful in terms of getting perspective and so to look at it from these three different points of view is like wow look at me and how i can get really caught in my stuff oh <laughs> and i'm you know my husband and i have this <laughs> practice that i write a lot about in the book where you know it happens all the time like i was you know getting taking the laundry out or something like that the other day. And he's like, where are you going? What's happening? <laughs> and I'm there with holding the laundry and I'm like doing the laundry. And he's like, I said, but what's the story you're telling yourself? And he's like, Oh, the story I'm telling myself is that you're leaving. Whoa, and I yeah. said, <laughs> and we're able to, you know, and I have the same experience as myself, you know, I, and it's so sweet to be able to have that kind of perspective to say like, what's the story you're telling yourself about what's happening? And then the moment you, at least I have this experience, you have this immediate perspective. Oh, that's the story I'm telling myself. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it, exactly. You know, it, it is all about us just like, circling around in those freaking mazes in our head, you know, and, and, and the stories, you know, the stories are like, like, you know, there's like a meadow and there's like a path that's all beaten down. And then there's another area of the meadow that maybe you see like one footprint. And when you get to that meadow, what do you do? You go through the beaten down path. And that's the same with our mind. It just twists around on the same old stories over and over and over again. And, and like I said, I mean, I've been practicing for over 20 years and I'm still doing that. And, you know, it's like they, what they said, you know, the, the, the Buddha still suffered through the three poisons or the three giants. It's just that 
you know, he was aware of it faster and it went away faster. And it's, and it's like, I had a teacher. Yeah. And I had a teacher who said, you know, don't think that your practice isn't paying off. He said, I used to get teachers come, uh, students come to me all the time and say, Oh, I've been practicing all this time and nothing's changing. Nothing's changing. Well, he said, if nothing's changing, first of all, you're not doing it right. Second of all, um, something will change a little and and even if it's it even if it's just like in your case with with your husband it's like even if you it took you um you, you recognize the fact that there was that story going on in your head like uh you recognized it an hour later instead of tomorrow right i've you know i've been in a relationship with my wife for 42 years and we're still doing those stupid things i mean although mostly we're used to them. And so we don't have those nice discussions probably that, that you're having, but um, we, we still, it's like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I'll see sort of an expression on my wife's face and I'll think, you know, boy, why in the world is she so mad at me? What did I do? But she may just be thinking about, you know, something that happened to her 30 years ago that has nothing to do with me. I mean, it's it's like, it's, but of course, it's all about us. And that's what I love about how you framed all of this. It's It was just wonderful. Your teachings are deeply psychological. And I, and that is to be expected since you're a psychotherapist, I guess. But I love how you bend and stretch you know, concepts for reflection hmm. on our behaviors in ways we wouldn't ordinarily think of. Like if we were thinking of like the Eightfold Path, we'd think of them in a more literal way, the way everybody teaches them, you know, and hmm. you totally move beyond the literalness, which I like. I mean, you, you touch on the literalness a little bit. Hmm. Um, and I see my relationship to the Dharma the exact same way, but in a bit of a inside baseball kind of thing with you for a second is I hear criticism of explaining teachings, you know, explaining how I teach the Dharma in this non-literal way as not the Dharma, but my own made up stuff. Right. It's like some I'll, like reviews of my book or reviews of my podcast. Now, I don't I've learned after four years to like, I don't care. You know, that's how let them, you know, however you, however you want to think about it. And it's, it's your path. But as a Zen teacher in robes, I imagine you maybe have run into this class with the fundamental views a little more, even than me, because people think of me, even though I am a sensei, they think of me as less of a teacher. I don't wear robes. I do wear a Kesa, but you know, it's, it's like, I think People expect literal on this, you know, people expect you to tell the Buddhist story in the way that they've heard it rather than than the way you might want to position it psychologically. Do you have any words of wisdom around that? And this like we won't spend too much time. This is just I guess it's a question that I need to have answered. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm feeling tender towards you. <laughs> Thank you. And. For me, it's very um, it's very important to acknowledge the teachings and to be as honoring of them as I can. And 
and to honor the ancestors. For me, you know, in the Soto Zen lineage, that it's the ancestors are very important and being appreciating of them and honoring them. And my wish is that my expression of the Dharma is a way of honoring them. And each of them were unique and had their unique expression of the Dharma. And so I do appreciate, um, you know, people will say all kinds of things about all kinds of things. And, you know, (laughs) to me, criticism in my own life has always been such an interesting moment. And to be receptive to that criticism for myself has been always super helpful to say like, wow, okay. And just to bring it in and be like, is there something in that that's true, even if it's not true, how they're thinking it's true? Right, right. And maybe there is a little something and maybe not, but to me, it's just about, to me, part of, actually how I gauge how my practice is going is how receptive I am for people to not like me (laughs) and to, or to think I'm an idiot or think I'm, you know, a really foolish or, you know, to me, it's actually one of the things I just like to be. It, to me, it's a great barometer for how I'm going, how I'm doing is how I'm receiving things. And if I'm over-personalizing it or, you know, because I also think of, yeah, sometimes feedback is true. Yeah. And it may not be what I want to hear, but I think it's always helpful. And there's a story the Buddha te- that is told about the Buddha where this, he was giving a talk somewhere and some guy stands up in the crowd and was like, Buddha, you suck. You know, you're like, <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about, you know. What you're saying is garbage, essentially. And the Buddha just, and people were like, ooh, no, 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 that's it's insulting the Buddha. That's terrible. It's a terrible thing. And the Buddha saw that it was um, something interesting. And the Buddha said, you know, so he speaks to the person, you know, in the middle of his talk, he interrupts his talk. And So the Buddha says, oh, so if you give a gift to someone and the person does not receive the gift, to whom does the gift belong? Mm -hmm. And the person was like, uh, the person giving the gift. And the Buddha said, yes. So like that, since I do not receive (laughs) your gift, to whom do your words belong and reflect? And for whom do they reflect? And so it's that's another side to it where, you know, my wish is, I mean, of course, none of us were there. But that the Buddha would, even in the moment, check it out and feel like, is this true or not? And if it's not true, just say like, okay, that's your belief. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And that that can be your belief that I don't, that I have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) And okay. Yeah. 
But I, what I love about the story is he didn't make the person into a villain. It's like, oh, he's a terrible, how dare he criticize me like that? And he's just like, you know, those are your thoughts. Right. Right. You know, my my teacher who uh, just passed this past March. So we just lost, I just lost my precious mm. teacher, um, um, mm. uh, Reverend Koyo Sensei, Koyo Kabose Sensei. He's um, he's the son of Reverend Gyome Kabose, uh, who was the founder of the uh, Chicago Buddhist Temple back in, mm. in, in the first non-Zen Buddhist temple in the Midwest. Um so anyway, he, my my teacher, uh, he passed away, and he used, he used to tell the story about when he would stand up and give a sermon. He took over for his father. He'd give a, a dharma talk to uh, the the temple members, and um, and you know, he said sometimes some some older woman would walk up to me afterwards and complain about what a terrible talk it was, and 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 I would always say. Um, when someone gives a Dharma talk, it's the responsibility of both the listener and the presenter to make it happen, to make it happen. And so maybe my Dharma talk was rotten, but maybe the way you listened was rotten. So we just have to ask ourselves, which was it? So, so that that's what that reminded me. Um, and and uh, this all started when I said how you uh, bent and shape shifted and twisted, you, you know, especially around the ethics, uh, the the teachings to to come up with something unique. Um, like in the, in the speech you talk, uh, you, in right speech, you talk about judgment and categorizing others in, in, uh, based on the speech inside our heads. Um, and this reminds me of that acronym, wait, why am I talking? Um, and I often use that in my own way. I twist it around to say, why am I thinking that? Right. Um, so I loved that. And then with your action, you said, I, you know, I love the, I loved how you talked about this was just, this is just stopped me in my tracks stealing about stealing uh, as are you sharing your real self with others? And your reflection in that part of the book was who do you not disclose your real self to? Is it possible that you're stealing something important from them? That was a wonderful teaching. Um, I don't know if you have, I know, you know, we're getting a little late, but I wonder if you have anything to say about that one. Well, for me, that actually, you know, that the historical Buddha talked about thoughts, words, and actions, right? right. And so, and so to me, I, I often don't hear people talking about how, how you're working with your thinking, right? right. And to me, it's foundational to like a rigorous practice to like, well, because it, all of this starts creating reality. Right. Like in our, and then it turns into words, then we start doing stuff. And then it builds our character. So, yeah, so to really reflect on stealing, how we're often stealing so much, and we're often tend to be quite stingy 
by even with our own thoughts, by even not being thinking about others. Uh, yeah. You know, recently I was talking to someone and someone was very upset with me and <laughs> because they weren't getting what they wanted. And they wanted a certain outcome to happen. It's not possible. And they were upset with me about that. And it was just a very interesting moment to me as a practice opportunity to be like, wow, that they're so in their own need. Yeah. In this kind of young place to like, give me, give me, give me, feed me, feed me, feed me, give me cookie, 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 cookie that I don't even see you. And so I'm just going to be, you're like the bad, you're bad mm -hmm. <laughs> because you're not giving me what I want. want. <laughs> and it's like, a that's a form of stealing. So our self clinging is a deep form of stealing. Yeah. From actually ah, feeling wisdom and compassion and allowing ourselves to experience wisdom and compassion as a guide. Yeah, that that's that's great. Um and it's so true. It's like uh you know, and I think in relationships it's so true too. We sometimes um we're tired or whatever and you know, maybe our partner wants to talk about something and we could talk about it. It would probably make things better or whatever, but we're like we don't want to we don't do it, right? Because we're we're stealing our own thoughts away instead of sharing them at that time. It may not be the right time to talk about it, but if 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 someone else wants to talk about it, it probably is the right time to talk about it. Um, and we just got a little more time, so I I would like to toss it back to you to talk more. You know, we talked a little about the ethics part, a lot about the uh, the uh, the perspective you didn't go into intention much, but that's okay. It's in the book. You'll find it. Uh, um, uh, but if you have time, I will toss it to you to talk more about the two meditation aspects of the eightfold path, attention and sure. meditation, um, which, you know, to me, that's like that circles back around to the reflection and the, the right view part. And since you are a Zen teacher, I imagine you have a few more words to say about meditation. So take it away. <laughs> well, you know, I think it was Dogen who talks about you know, the only time we're not doing Zazen is when we're not doing Zazen. And, <laughs> and Zazen itself means seated meditation. And so that is to me a quality that we can be doing like right now while we're in this conversation. Am I seated? Am I grounded? Am I soft in my breath, in my belly? Am I, are my shoulders open? Is, am I aligned? Are my values? I often feel like that practice, what we're doing in terms of study and Zazen and Samua and work work practice and all of that is equal to only equal when we're maintaining the precepts, our ethical guidelines. So that's our uprightness. And so I think that it's actually many people think that their meditation practice is what they do when they're on a little cushion or a chair. 
you know, when right. they're on a zafu, as we call them, or a chair or laying down. But it really is just, that's one time that yeah. we're practicing our practice. Mm-hmm. Practice is happening, is available all the time. And actually someone recently said, you know, I just read your book and I realized, I think what you're saying is like, everything is a place of practice. <laughs> Well, actually, when you read your book, and and I wondered if that was sort of a literary device you were using. I kept thinking about that, um, or whether it was just the way you teach when you teach, because you know I'm not your student, so I don't know. But um, it seemed because the repetitiveness of and that is the place of practice, and that is the place of practice. You know, after a while, you realize there is no place that's not the place of practice. <laughs> Right. I mean, it comes from an early sutra, actually, where there, uh, where it just is this list of all the things that are places of practice, which is like the same idea. And I found that so enlivening. I remember reading that and saying, yes, that makes so much sense. And wow, having a conversation is a place of practice, you know, to to get out of bed is a place of practice to <laughs> shower is get a place of like actually to me it's actually a teaching that has made everything come alive where you know we have this chant that we do at the end of practice each evening which says let me respectfully remind you life and death are of supreme importance time swiftly passes by and opportunities are lost each of us must strive to awaken awaken take heed don't squander your life so it's like this really saying like giddy up people you know <laughs> like the, and i think it also to me it reminds me what you know we spend some of the time with people who know that they're dying Right. And the consistent message from the edge of life is, what was I waiting for? How did I squander so much time with my hesitation, with my fears and my laziness? Yeah. And like, no one is like, I've yet to hear a regret saying, I'm so glad I soaked up every minute and found every place is a place of practice. Like I've yet to hear that regret. And so, yeah. but it, but the regrets are so huge around wasting time, hesitating, mm-hmm. living in fear. Like that's when we kind of believe our feelings to be reality. Like we can feel fear. Yeah, yeah. And then what do we do? Yeah, yeah. It's like I... You know, I, like I said, I just turned 70 and I even said giddy up to somebody the other day. It's like I just I, it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm just not going fast enough. I'm just not doing the things I need to do. So that was awesome. Um, Since we're getting we're short on time, I'm going to leave. You added a ninth path, um, the mystery path. And I'm going to leave it a mystery and uh, let the readers or the listeners who are will be your readers soon um, 
uh, look in the book about mystery and it's much about sitting with uncertainty in my mind, which is something, unfortunately, I think we've come to learn about more in the last few years than ever before. And most of us haven't done it very well from what I can see. Um, so if there's any reason to giddy up on your practice, I think it would be that understanding of the mystery part of the path. So Sensei Koshin, thank you so much for spending a little time with me and everyday Buddhism listeners. It was, it, it was a joy to have you on just as much as I um, looked forward to it. So thanks again. Thank you so much. And thank you for what you do in the world. That's it for this episode. I know you enjoyed this conversation with the honest, caring, and delightful Koshin Paley Ellison. You can find more about him, the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, and his books through the links in the show notes. Next up, of course, some announcements. Um, as always, you know, we the reminder comes that you can join me and, and, and many others in the private donation supported everyday Sangha. Um, the Sangha meets virtually via zoom every other week on Saturday mornings at 10 AM us Eastern time. And it is now uh, concluding the study of the book, river fire, river of water an introduction to the pure land tradition of Shin. Um, we're having the last Sangha, um, meeting that overviews our study of that book this coming Saturday, um, which is March. Uh, hold on a second. This coming Saturday, which is March 11th. Um, and um, so you could join us for that just to get uh, a feel for it. We also will begin a new study of the book, Heart of the Shin Buddhist Path, A Life of Awakening by Takamoro Shigaraki, um, with the first meeting on, with the focus on that book on Saturday, March 25th at 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, United States. So our meetings consist of a service first, before we go into any Sangha discussion or book study, including a short meditation period, traditional vow recitations, and other invocations like the refuge prayer, um, the three jewels, bodhisattva vows, etc., and some chanting. The service introduces a more ritual and liturgy into the structure of our meeting, much like you would find at a non-virtual Buddhist temple, church, or Sangha. The service includes a Dharma talk by one of the practice leaders or myself, Wendy Shinyo Sensei, and also a Dharma glimpse by a volunteer Sangha member. After the service, we open it up to discussion of the current book study or of anything that was inspired by one of the Dharma talks. Please consider joining the Sangha at this time, right now where we're about to start a new study. It's a great time to join and be a part of the new study, practice, and a warm and welcoming Sangha community. You can learn more about the Sangha in, by watching the latest bonus YouTube podcast where my, me, Bradley Janayo Sensei, and Terry Hoskin, 
those two are our practice leaders, talk about what the Sangha and what everyday Buddhism is all about. You can also support this podcast without joining the Sangha and then support the podcast and all the activities of the Everyday Buddhism community by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do, you will have access to all members-only podcasts, an education series, and a private group on a non-Facebook platform. If you don't follow me or Everyday Buddhism on any social media platforms we post in, you can go to the Everyday Buddhism website and join the membership community or the Everyday Sangha. Go to www.everyday-buddhism.com and click on either of the tabs that say either join the Everyday Sangha or join the membership community. I thank all of you who contribute in any way. It is important for this podcast and the related groups to receive your donations. I do not seek podcast sponsors. And I don't ask for any financial commitments through like paid podcast memberships. So all my work and the cost of the infrastructure needed to support what I do in the podcast, the Sangha, the private membership platform is entirely self-funded except for your donations. Again, I thank you. Please consider a one-time or continuing donation through Patreon or on my website's donate tab You can even buy me a cup of coffee with the link, uh, the coffee cup link on my website. You can find the links in the show notes. And thanks too to all of you who write in with comments and questions. I do read everything, but can't always respond. But I would love to respond to everyone if I had the time. Another way you can help is easy. Rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It's important to share the podcast with others if you find it helpful in your life. And if you could, take a minute to comment. Don't just give it five stars, which of course I know that's what you will do, but take a minute to comment so people will know exactly why you love everyday Buddhism, why it works in your life. That's all for the announcements. So until next time, Keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better. Mm